Wellness Force Radio, episode 51. We literally infect each other with our emotions in a flash, in a fleeting conversation, over the phone. I look at a picture. I'm starting to pick up emotional cues from somebody else. And, and certainly with habits, other people are a tremendous influence on our habits and we're influencing them just as well and so it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong it's just that how do we create an environment where everyone can thrive and when you know something about yourself then it's not i'm right you're wrong or you're right i'm wrong it's just like you know what you like it to be one way i really like it to be another way so how do we work this out Hello, podcast land. Welcome back to another episode. I am your host, Josh Trent, and I am happy you're eating a small slice of your busy day here with me on the podcast. This show is where I find you the most inspiring and passionate experts in behavior change and wellness technology. Every week on Wellness Force, you and I get to come together to learn from a world-class leader who dedicates their life to driving real transformation in physical and emotional wellness. Today, we're going deep to get knowledge and tools from Gretchen Rubin to better understand our habits and behaviors so we can all show up more vital, healthy, and fit in our lives, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. Wellness Force is the source of energy that fuels us all to be our best. So today, we're tapping into and getting clear on your Wellness Force. For episode 51, we're bringing on the world-famous Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen is the author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestseller, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, and Happier at Home. In Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives, she provides surprising insights and practical advice drawn from cutting-edge research, ancient wisdom, and her own observations about how we can make our lives better than before. She investigates the multiple strategies she's identified that helps us make and break our habits. After all, habits are the invisible architecture of a happy life. When we change our habits, we change our lives. Before we jump into today's exciting show, I've been prepping for this for so long, you guys. I am so excited to deliver this episode. You should see me right now. I'm at the standing desk. I'm literally on a little mini foam roller, tapping my feet up and down. Before we bring on Gretchen, I'm excited to bring you this episode by our new podcast sponsor, Perfect Supplements. I'm always searching for products I can trust, and I'm honored to support a company who walks the talk with their values of non-GMO, organic, and pesticide-free real food supplements that support us on the wellness journey. Head on over to perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce or enter code wellnessforce at checkout and get 10% off your next order. Listen, I know that this intro is a little bit longer than most, but bear with me because I'm about to speak directly from the heart. It may seem like in life on social media and all over the internet, it's so simple to craft this perfect personality or perfect architecture of exactly who we want people to see us as. Well, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, I'm guilty. I have definitely done the very best job I could of portraying that I have it all together. But just like every single person who tunes into Wellness Force Radio, I want to let you know this episode meant so much to me because habits are something that I've had to work through every single day of my life. Even yesterday, we got a really special review on iTunes this week, and it's from Hughes Productions 87. He writes, I just want to thank Josh personally for creating this podcast. I started listening last year in October, and the first one I heard was Hal Elrod. I purchased the Miracle Morning and began my transformation journey. Since then, I've quit a job that wasn't meant for me, started my own real estate photo and video business, and I'm running more miles a week than I've ever done in my life. 
And I'm more mindful and grateful about everything. To say I took this stuff to heart would be talking lightly. This show reinvigorated my passion for film, creativity, relationships, and life. I recently purchased my first professional camera and was fortunate enough to hit the streets of downtown Chicago. As a result, I passionately made a photography showcase of the streets, architecture, and people of Chicago. I haven't had that kind of exhilarating feeling since I made my first film in college in 2007. So thank you. I must attribute all of my knowledge, positivity, reemergence to follow my truth. Love that, by the way. And overall wellness to you and your message. With gratitude, Tim Hughes, Dallas, Texas. Tim, so grateful for you and so grateful for your energy listening to the show. If you enjoyed that episode with Hal, this one is going to rock your socks. Let's jump into the powerful conversation with best-selling author Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be talking to you today. Well, today we're not only talking about happiness, but also the building blocks of the quality of our life, which is habits, good or bad. These shape our existence. Gretchen, your life's work as an author has been exploring a simple yet powerful question, and that is, how can I be better than before? So I want to know, do you feel like today is better for you than before, better than yesterday? Well, I'd have to think back about what yesterday was, but just overall, I would say I'm on an upward trend. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many millions of pages and hundreds of videos about Gretchen Rubin online. So in this hyper-connected world where everyone listening knows a bit of who you are and what you do, what's something fun that most people don't know about you? Well, I don't know what a lot of people know. One thing that is kind of unusual about me is that I'm this gigantic fan of children's literature and young adult literature. I mean, I've started three reading groups where we read children's literature, and there are no children involved. We never talk about what we think children would think of these books. We only talk about what we as grown-ups think of these books. Um, but uh, I don't know if that's – I talk about that fairly often, but uh, so I don't know if most people know that or not, but pro- I'm sure not. So that is one thing about me. So an adult fan group that loves children's literature. Yes, and one of the things we talk about is why is it different? You know, and it just it is different. Why is there a different kind of pleasure from reading Little House in the Big Woods? You know, um, it's a pure and elevated a pleasure, but it's different. And uh, so anyway, it gives me a chance to um, read all these books that I love so much and talk about it with smart people. Well, we're all kids on the inside. That is for sure. Before becoming an author, though, you worked in the legal field as a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. But you felt this pull towards your heart's curiosity on this road to be you, to be Gretchen. You were a graduate of Yale Law School, but then at some point you realized you really just wanted to be a writer. What was this authentic Gretchen back then so curious about where she was burning to make the change and leave law? Well, you know, um, writing like many things, and I think this is much more widespread than is recognized, is some people feel a call. Um, they're not just interested in something, but they feel a call to do something. Um, and, uh, a call is good because it's clear and it's urgent and it's very satisfying to answer. On the other hand, a call, it's kind of like you sort of don't have a choice. It's very compelling. Um, and I was working as a lawyer, but I had been, I think my whole life I've been preparing to be a writer. And at a certain point that call just became strong enough that I decided, you know, at this, I, I finally had had an idea of a book I wanted to write. Before that, I hadn't really seen how I would fit into the writing world. I didn't want to be an academic. I didn't want to be a journalist. I didn't want to be a novelist. What was I going to be? 
I finally saw the kind of book that I wanted to write. And, uh, and I came to the point where I thought, you know what, I'd rather at this point fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. So I should give it a shot and either succeed or fail and then move on. Um, and so that's when I made the switch. This call to adventure you speak of, it's, I wouldn't say adventure. I wouldn't say adventure because I wouldn't say I'm an adventurous person. Ah, okay. Well, just a call to action then. It reminds me of The Hero's Journey from Joseph Campbell. Has that been something that's ever been on your radar? Yeah, no, I'm very interested in all that stuff. Yeah, but you know, I feel like sometimes people over-romanticize like this kind of thing, um, like that they feel like unless it comes to them, you know, uh, like there's a very specific way that these kinds of transformations occur in people's lives. And I just would say, I think it happened in all different ways. When this was happening to me, it did not feel flashy. It felt very kind of like, well, maybe I'll go to the bookstore and buy a book about how to write a nonfiction book proposal. Like maybe that would be a good idea. Got it. Yeah. 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 It was very kind of ordinary. Like sure. I, I didn't, I didn't feel it was sort of one step in front of the other. It all felt very muddled. Um, so, you know, at the time it did not feel like a Joseph Campbell typed transition, though looking back on it, I can certainly, I could describe it accurately in ways that make it seem like super, super grand. Um, and it's all true, uh, but it didn't feel that way at the time. Got it. Well, that's that's an interesting way of putting it, too. One of the first books you wrote was Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. You also wrote on your site that you have three, quote, terrible novels safely locked in a desk drawer. I have to know, like, what are these novels? Well, I do. So, I have a tendency to do something that is that is very deadly in novel writing, which is to write a novel of ideas. Which is when you have an idea and you play, try to play it out in a novel rather than be driven by characters and situations. And so, um, and that's really one of the ways that I found my way to nonfiction because I realized I was just using fiction as a way to talk about nonfiction things, and that's not a good way to do it. So my first book was. Um, all about the apocalypse. Um, I'm just incredibly drawn to the idea of apocalypse. Um, one was about uh, the question of why people destroy their own possessions. And I did later go on and write a book about that, which and it was much more successful as a nonfiction book um, called Profane Waste um, than it was as a novel, because I just sort of couldn't say what I wanted to say in a novel about mm. this mystery of why people would destroy their own things. And then I wrote a novel. I did NaNoWriMo. I don't know if any of your listeners have done that, but that's when you do, you write a novel in a month by writing like 1,687 words a day for 30 days. And I wrote a novel about that, about sort of New York City. Um, so these are all great things. And they're like doing scales for writers. It's always good as a writer. Anything that makes you do more writing is good. Um, but I am a really, really bad novelist. So yeah, those will never be seen. So years later, Gretchen, you wrote two powerful happiness books. This curiosity took you in a different direction to begin studying habits and write this New York Times bestselling book better than before. This spark actually came from a lunch conversation with a friend who told you, you know, I used to run in high school, but now as an adult, I just can't go running. Can you take us there to this lightning bolt that possibly struck you and the result was better than before. Yeah, this was this this conversation, which like ended up having this huge transformation in my thoughts. Um, and and when we had that conversation, we were like in a restaurant, just having uh, having casual meal. 
Um, there have been a lot of things that have been knocking around in my brain that I wasn't able to put into a pattern that I wasn't able to make sense of. Because, you know, I'd been writing about happiness. I wrote the Happiness Project, Happier at Home. And I have this blog. Now I've just now I've written on my blog for 10 years. I just passed my 10-year anniversary. And I had noticed that a lot of times it wasn't that people didn't know what made them happy, what make them happier. They had identified it. Like they were like, I know I'd be happier if I exercised. I know I'd be happier if I quit sugar. I know I'd be happier if I could make consistent progress on uh, my blog. I know I would be happier if I got more sleep. I know I'd be happier if I stopped binge watching Game of Thrones every night until 3 a.m. But they weren't they weren't able to act on it, you know. And so I began very became very intrigued with the role that habits could play in helping people to be happier, healthy, healthier, more productive, more creative. But then I also started noticing that I would talk about things I had done and people would like in the happiness project, I would say something like, Oh, I decided to start a blog and I write on my blog six days a week. And people would say, but how did you get yourself to do it? And I would say something like, well, I, I just decided that I thought it would make me happier. So I tried it and it did make me happier. So I did it. And then they would say to me, but how did you get yourself to do it? And I was like, I, I don't understand. Like, what's the problem? You know, and like over and over and over, I began to notice this. And I also began to notice other patterns. People would say things like, well, the minute something's on my schedule, I don't want to do it. Interesting. I don't have that reaction. Or people who would say things like, well, I would never keep a New Year's resolution because January 1st is an arbitrary date. And I'd be like, hmm, that's interesting. Why do so many people say that exact comment? It never has struck me that January 1st is arbitrary. Like that, that just kind of caught my attention. But when my friend said this thing about being on the track team, I was like, something's going on here. I'm seeing these big patterns that are affecting the way that people form habits like what, what's going on? I could sense that there was some logic to it, or there was some pattern underneath the surface that would explain why people were saying the same thing. Some of, and many of whom were very different from my reactions in similar situations. And so that's, and when she said that about the track team, I really got me focused. What is different? about when she was on the track team and why she and 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 her situation now. Now, there's a there's so many things like it's confusing because it's like is it her age? Is it her family circumstance? Is it team spirit? Is it location? Is it weather? Is it, there's a million things. What did I think was going on? And that's what started me really focusing on this idea of an expectation. How do people respond to an expectation? And the way that expectations are presented um, makes a huge difference in how people respond. And that was sort of a major clue. That little comment from her was a big puzzle piece for me. So it doesn't sound too dramatic. There was no lightning bolts involved. It was kind of similar to your first experience where you felt a shift and it took time to explore it. It, it was, it's interesting. It was sort of in between, like it hit me like a buzz. Like she just said something very important. Yeah. I don't know why it's important, but I often have that feeling. I'm like a person who like, I'm kind of susceptible to epiphany, which is one of my favorite things about myself. And I will often lock in on something and I will, I will be like, this is important, but I don't know why. And it can mm -hmm. sometimes take me years to understand what, like Andy Warhol, I love Andy Warhol. I read his stuff. I, I don't even like his art that much. I love his writing and like what he says. And often I will be turning over and over in my mind something that Andy Warhol has said. Being like, what does he mean by that? Why is that important? And it it's just takes a long time to figure it out. And that's how I felt with her. It wasn't that it made everything clear. It was just like it was like the question 
became the question became clear. The answer was not yet clear. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this exploration path, I mean, I think everyone I know has a habit they want to change. There's yes. an ocean of information out there to confuse even the most intelligent person. <laughs> like have a cheat day, get up at five and meditate, go to a new seminar, eat more broccoli. Yes. You write profoundly. This is a great quote. Uh, from your site. Unfortunately, we've all learned from tough experience. No magic, one size fits all solution exists. And that the real secret to habit change is that in order to change our habits, we must first know ourselves. So before we talk about habits, Gretchen, what does this self-exploration, this self-awareness look like for a first-time reader? How do we begin to recognize our true nature? Well, you know, I think that you put your finger right on it. And this is the great challenge of our lives. I mean, and this is not new, like, by the way, know thyself is on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. So this is like the most ancient piece of wisdom, but it is so true because really the only way we can make a happy life, the only way we can change our habits is really on the foundation of our own nature, our own interests, our own values. Um, and one of the things I try to do in all my books, and particularly better than before, is to point out differences among people. Because I think it's, it's human nature to think everybody sees the, way, the world the way I, I do. And if, if something works for me, it's going to work for you, Josh. Like, hey, mm -hmm. Josh, I don't eat any sugar. That's what you should do. If you would just give up sugar, you'd feel so much better. Then all your cravings would go away. Then you like, And you're like, but I don't want to give up sugar. You know what I mean? It's like, no, it works for me, Gretchen. That doesn't mean it works universally. And so we have to try to understand um, how we're alike and different. Now, they say there are two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people who divide the world into two kinds of people and the kind of people who don't. And <laughs> I'm the kind of people who does. And I'm constantly saying, are you a morning person or a night person? Are you an abstainer or a moderator? Are you a finisher or an opener? Are you a simplicity lover or an abundance lover? Because I think a lot, a lot of times even these – like very, very simplistic categories can can illuminate patterns of what works for us and what doesn't work for us. So so say you're an abundance lover versus a simplicity lover. So you might say, and you're the boss, you're the boss of me. And you come into my office and you say, hey, Gretchen, there's too much stuff here. You got too much on your bulletin board. You got too much on your desk. You got too many tabs open on your monitor. You need bare shelves. You need clean surfaces. There's, it's too much noise. There's too much going on. You're going to be more creative and efficient if you would bring more simplicity into your life. Yeah. Well, that could be very true for you, but I'm a, if I'm an abundance lover, that's not going to work for me. I like choices. I like profusion. I like a little bit of buzz. I like collections. I like a lot going on. That's what works for me. And so it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just that how do we create an environment where everyone can thrive? And when you know something about yourself, then it's not I'm right, you're wrong, or you're right, I'm wrong. It's just like, you know what? You like it to be one way. I really like it to be another way. So how do we work this out? There's, you know, once you have a term, like a vocabulary for it, it's much easier to talk about it dispassionately instead of saying, like, why do you always do this? Or, you know, why can't you do this? Why don't you respect my ways? It's just you're a morning person. I'm a night person. You know, you want to do it first thing in the morning. The first part of the morning is not a good time for me. Let's work it out. There is an entire chapter in Better Than Before on self-knowledge. And you've talked about it a couple of times here, the lark versus the owl. Yes. I know that you're a lark. I have to tell you though, I shift. Sometimes I'm a lark, sometimes I'm an owl. Maybe that's a habit change that I get to explore. Mm -hmm. But can you unpack this lark versus owl concept? I think this is something that applies to everyone in regards to self-awareness. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I used to think that 
owls could become larks if they just went to bed earlier. Um, but in fact, um, research shows it's largely genetically determined. It's also a function of age. Um, young people and older people tend to be larkish and, um, and like sort of teenagers and young adults tend to be more owlish. And some people are kind of in the middle, but then, so, and then of course people move out towards the extremes. And the problem comes, um, when, when your life isn't set up the way that is best for you. And unfortunately this often happens to owls and research, shows that owls tend to be less happy. And the speculation is that that's because the world is largely set up for larks a lot because children start school early, work starts early. And so owls are constantly kind of working against their natural, the natural rhythm of their day. And, um, and I have had people who, you know, I, a guy who I have known for years, a hardcore owl, like no doubt about it, looked me in the eye and said, you know, I've been a, my New Year's resolution is to get up early and go for a run before work every day. And I'm just like, that, that's not going to work for you, my friend. I, like, I get why it works on paper. I can show you, like, I can show you an article where it says, like, all these successful people get up and exercise before they go to work. And it work, would work for me because I'm a lark, but it's not going to work for him. He's not going to be able to stick to it. He'd be, mu in my view, he'd be much better off figuring out, well, how can I exercise later in the day when I'm at a higher place of energy? Um, instead of trying to force myself to fit into this mold that isn't right for me because 7 a.m. is just not a good time for him to be doing anything. This resonates so much with me because for a long time, I was following the work of Hal Elrod. We had him on the show last year and he's the proponent of the Miracle Morning. I don't know if you've heard of the Miracle Morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in his work, it's, you know, there's so many things about getting up early, but it's not for everyone. I think it goes 100% with self-awareness. When we look at happiness, though, self-awareness is also being honest with ourselves about whether we are actually happy or not. You said something in an interview that was so refreshing, and it was in regards to someone quoting, you know, happiness is a choice. And I heard you say that you don't believe happiness is a choice. I was like, yes, because I don't believe in positive thinking. Like I believe in positive doing. Mm. Can you explain why you believe happiness isn't just a choice? I mean, for some people, that must really be meaningful because they say it in such a heartfelt way that it must really strike a chord. But like clearly for you and me, this it doesn't strike a chord. And I agree with you. I my whole view is like it's very hard to change your inner self. It's very hard to change your to like purposefully change your emotional state. It's very hard to change like your inner nature, but it's very easy to change your outer circumstances and it's pretty easy to control your actions. And so instead of trying to control yourself from the inside, I would say like try to bring about change through the outside. So it's you know people say to me, "Oh, you know, I need to work on my self-control and I need to have more willpower because there's ice cream in the house and I can't help it and then I have a little bit and then I have more and, you know, it, and I'll go all day and then at midnight I find my, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? Just don't have ice cream in the house. And then like, you don't have to do any of that. Don't work on your self-control. Just don't have ice cream in the house. And then like your problem is solved because I guarantee that you're not going to get in your car at midnight and go to the ice cream store. You're just not going to do that. And so, and so the thing about, so making happiness a choice, I'm like, I can't choose to be happy, but I can choose to spend more time with my friends. I can choose to spend more time with my family. I can choose to go to sleep earlier so that I feel well rested. I can choose to make sure that I have time to read for fun, which is the most important thing to me. I can choose to get a dog, which is going to be a lot of work, but also bring me a lot of happiness. I, those things I feel like I can, I can concretely and specifically consciously choose. And I know that they're going to make me happier. But like to just choose happiness, I, I just don't, I don't even know what that would be.
Yeah. And it's really difficult for telling an Eeyore uh, to just be happy. Can you unpack that concept of being a Tigger or an Eeyore? Yeah. So Tigger and Eeyore, um, you know, when you look at happiness, research shows that about 50% is genetically determined. And so some people are born Tiggers, some people are born Eeyores, and that's pretty much hardwired. Then about 10 to 20% is life circumstances, which is things like health, uh, income, marital status, education, um, and, and so forth. And then the rest is very much influenced by our conscious thoughts and actions. And that's really where you're, you're ha- you could do a happiness project. You could work on your habits to be better than before. This is where you can really move the needle for yourself. And I think, so I think the way to think about it is like, you know, maybe for one person, their natural range is like four to seven. And another person's natural range might be eight to 10. But the Eeyore, through conscious thoughts and actions, could make sure that he, he or she is pushing, is getting pushed to the top of their natural range instead of doing things that are going to depress them down to the bottom of their natural range. And, you know, and same thing for the Eeyore, I mean, for the Tigger, because it's like, you know, we've all been seen where you can be the same person, but, but, you know, like you're in a job that you hate and then you get a job that you love. Well, basically everything else in your life is the same and you're certainly the same person, but you've made a conscious change, which has had a dramatic effect because Mm -hmm. it's working on that percentage that is affected by our conscious thoughts and actions. Now, a lot of times I hear constantly from Tigger, like the Tigger parent of an Eeyore child. And they're like, why can't this Eeyore child just wake up and face the morning with a smile and look on the bright side and, re- you know, remember that the glass is half full? And, you know, it's just like, that's not your kid. Um, and the more you badger them by trying to tell them to cheer up and wear a smile, the more they're going to push away. And you might even be polarizing them. A lot of times Tiggers and Eeyores will sort of polarize each other. Um because they don't accept each other's worldviews. And so what I, in my observation, the best thing to do is to acknowledge the reality of someone else's perspective, to say something like, well, you're really not worried about the report. You feel like it's all going to go well. I, I'm worried, but you feel like you feel confident. Or to say to somebody like, I feel confident, but you're worried about the report. You think we can't pull it off on time. I, I think we can, but I see that you're very concerned. And then a person feels like, okay, well, you understand what I'm saying. Like you, you, you hear what I'm, you hear my point of view. Mm. It's when people keep saying, like, no, you're wrong. Look on the bright side. That's the right way. Well, then people are like, no, I, yeah. I reject your worldview. You know what I mean? And then and then everybody becomes antagonized. And when someone's not acknowledged, they're going to shut down. I mean, that's a psychological yes. framework. So that's that makes yes. perfect sense to me. But I have to challenge you a little bit because you said something on a previous interview that half, basically 50% of happiness is yes. genetically determinant and hardwired. Yeah. I'm going to drop into my quasi questioner tendency, although I am a, I'm not a questioner tendency. I am actually an obliger, but for just a minute. How were these numbers derived that I don't like thinking half of my happiness was determined at birth? Can you help me feel better about this? Oh, you know, I don't remember the, I don't remember the, um, the citations anymore. Cause it's been a while since I looked at that, but that's just, that's what the research shows. Who, who, uh, it, it'll come to me in a second. The person who's most closely associated with that, the, the, um, the, uh, the breakdown. Yes. But in our life, you're saying that basically kind of at birth, we are kind of born with a certain type. And that is what we get to shift into either genetically or epigenetically for the rest of our existence. Well, and don't you don't you see that in the world around you? I mean, people just they, they kind of have a temperament that that uh, 
I mean, and the thing is, for most people all around the world, all around the world, if you say to people, are you happy? Most people say they're either pretty happy or very happy. Most people are pretty happy or they're very happy. You know, it's and so um, so that's that that's sort of the where most people find themselves. Mm. Um, but I I have to say and that's and that's my bias, too, is that I'm a big believer in the genetic roots of personality. I think it's a much bigger thing than than many people believe. Um, so to me, that sounds right. Um, but you can definitely look up the research. It's that's very well established about how they derive those numbers. And it gets very complicated, of course, because it, there's all the feedback. With, like, if you're very, you know, like you might have a certain behavior that then creates more happiness, because as you go out in the world and behave a certain way, you get a certain kind of response. So it gets, yes. con- it gets, it, get, it can get confusing to unpack, like mm-hmm. what's the genetic part and what's sort of just the kind of consequence of having a certain kind of predisposition. So I don't remember exactly how they did it. Well, I mean, as we look at the four tendencies, which I'm so excited to introduce to Wellness Force Radio, before that, though, is awareness. And with awareness, there's a concept you write about called emotional contagion. Our environment and people can greatly affect our happiness and also our habits if we allow it. But can you explain what this emotional contagion is and how does it work? Yeah, no, and it, it's perfect. Uh, it's a perfect thing uh, from the t- Tigger Eeyore because this is why a lot of Tiggers want Eeyores to change. Um, because there is something called emotional contagion. We literally infect each other with our emotions in a flash, in a fleeting conversation, over the phone. I look at a picture. I'm starting to pick up emotional cues from somebody else. And and certainly with habits, other people are a tremendous influence on our habits, and we're influencing them just as well. And so one of the things is you want to think about that in terms of the people that you surround yourself with. So, like, let's say – Let's say you go in and you're interviewing, you know, you you work in a company and you might go work for this person who you've known for a while. And this person like really is like down, downbeat, Uh, you know, does not have a positive view of the world and very critical. Like Mm. you're not going to go in there and transform that person. You know what I mean? That's the person's outlook. And um, you might want to think about that as you think about entering into their um, domain. Um, or you're thinking about having a roommate. It's like, okay, well, what is the emotional energy coming off that person? Because that's that's going to be a, a big influence in your life. If this person's going to be living with you, you are going to be picking up that emotion. Um, and so it's something to be very aware of. And also to be aware of yourself. Like, I think one of the reasons that Tiggers and Eeyores often do get polarized is that the Tigger wants the Eeyore to cheer up, both for the, the Eeyore's sake, because they want the Eeyore to be happier, but also because they feel that downward pull. You know, it's like mm-hmm. uh, it's like the Death Star tractor beam is dragging them down, and they don't want that. So they want the Eeyore to, to cheer up so they don't feel the downward pull of that emotional contagion. And I think that's something for Eeyores to be aware of. You know what I mean? That That if it is emotionally draining for other people to be around you, that will affect the way they interact with you. That's just, that is just the reality of it. Yeah. I think we've all had those types of interactions too. And they directly relate to really what I believe is the most powerful thing I've ever seen when we describe who we are and what we do. And you call it the four tendencies is the way we respond to inner and outer expectations. This is at the core of your book. Can you briefly define each of these four tendencies for us? Yes. So just as you said, it's how we deal with an expectation. And so, and it's how we manage outer expectations, like a work deadline or request from a spouse, 
or inner expectations. And that's like our own desire to write a novel in our free time, our own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. And so they're upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline to keep the New Year's resolution without much effort. They want to know what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They won't do anything arbitrary or irrational or inefficient. Um, once they make up their mind to do something, they will absolutely meet that expectation. But if they're not convinced, they won't. So in a way, they make everything an inner expectation because they have to endorse it. Then there are obligers, and obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And this is the answer to the question of my friend on the track team. When she had a team and a coach counting on her, she had no trouble showing up for practice. But when she's just running on her own, when there's no, there's no accountability, she struggles. And then finally, rebels. Rebels want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Uh, they don't even want to tell themselves what to do. Now, most people can tell what they are from this brief description, but if you go to my site and if you go to happiercast.com slash quiz, it will take you to a quiz where you can like get an answer spit out to you. But most people, most people get it like just from the briefest description I have found. Well, last week I actually sent out this quiz oh, to, my, to my audience. So I have some data for you. I know you love data. Here's I do. the results. I do. I'm picking up my pen. Okay, great. <laughs> Here's the results out of a 50 person survey. Um, a lot of the people maybe weren't ready to take the test, but we do have some nice numbers. 14 obligers, three upholders, one rebel and five questioners. Why do you think there are so many more obligers in this world or maybe just my world? Oh, I think that's definitely consistent all across the board. Obliger is the biggest tendency. That is the, the tendency that the most people fit into. Um, you said you're an obliger, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. It, and, and they're the rock of the world. Um, and so, but they, they are, and they're also, oh, thank you. They're also type O in that um, appropriately <laughs> because they're the ones that get along the best with other tendencies. Like other tendencies, there's kind of pairings that can be difficult. Obligers tend to get along the best with, with all, with the other three tendencies. Um, and then questioner is next. This is a pretty, like I would typically see the number of questioners closer to obligers, but here's the funny thing about questioners. They often won't do something like take a quiz because they're like, why, why, why should I spend my time taking a quiz? Ah, they, so maybe there's some questioners that chose not to take it. Yes, because they're like, why would okay. I spend my time taking this quiz? I have, got it, got its it. authority hasn't been established to me. Why would I believe? And then they also tend to be like, I, you know, so if you say to yourself, I question the validity of this framework, that is a big sign that you're a questioner. So it may be the questioners um, like underreported. It's very, it's very uh, predictable to me that you would have a tiny, tiny number of rebels. That is a very, very small tendency. Um, it's a conspicuous tendency, but it's a very small tendency. But the thing that came as a huge shock to me when I was writing better than before, um, and really in terms of self-knowledge generally, you talk about self-awareness. This is how unself-aware I was. When I found out that I was an upholder, and I realized that upholder is actually a tiny tendency. It's an extreme personality. Rebel and upholder are the extreme personalities. They are on the poles. They're very, very, very few people in those categories. Um, it was a huge revelation to me because I thought I was pretty typical. Hmm. And in fact, I'm on the I, I'm a freak on the on the on the fringe, um, which, by the way, no one was surprised by but me. But um, overwhelmingly, people are obligers or questioners. 
We'll get right back to the conversation with Gretchen. This is a perfect time to start talking about habits in our lives and more importantly, in our nutrition. This week coming up, let's stack the cards to support healthy habits in the way we eat by talking about the elephant in the wellness room, and that is magnesium. Lack of magnesium is widespread. 90% of people have a magnesium deficiency. This can contribute to depression, calcification of the arteries, anxiety, muscle spasms, high blood pressure, hormone issues, the list goes on and on. On the Wellness Force page over at perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce, I've added my hand-selected products, one of them being Natural Calm, which is the best source of magnesium I feel is out on the market. Head on over to perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce, pick up some magnesium, start sleeping better, start feeling your best and being better than before. Enter code wellnessforce and get 10% off your entire order. Now let's jump back to the conversation with Gretchen Rubin. And this came up for me when I was reading your book. I thought, wow, Match.com could really benefit from your services and hire you so they can integrate this tendency framework into Mm. their dating algorithm. How easy would that make it for people to find a better match? Interesting. You know, it's funny because I have a whole section in this book that I'm writing about how people pair up. And the problem is it's like you would never want to say that people shouldn't pair up because they they might be amazing pairs for other reasons, because this is just one aspect. Yeah. Um, but I do agree. Like, whenever I meet an upholder married to a rebel, I'm just like, mm, man, I would not be in your shoes. And a lot of times they're kind of like, ooh, really? Like, that's I didn't realize that this wasn't going to change. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's. Gonna. They often think like, oh, this person's like, one day they're going to wake up and realize you can't live like this. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. So, uh, but that would be fascinating, though. It would be fascinating. That'd be I so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. No. Or even just to know, it's like, just, just so you know, it's not, we're not saying that it would, it's necessarily advisable or not advisable, but it's just like, in case you're interested, because it is, it, it makes a huge difference. I mean, it definitely affects everything about your relationship. For tendencies, do you feel like we're born with certain genetics? Kind of going back to our previous question about our 50% of happiness being set at birth. What about by a certain age that the neural pathways of our tendency type can be set? No, I do. I absolutely. I believe they're genetically determined. Uh, I think that you they are pervasive, ubiquitous parts of your personality. Uh, you're you're not one at 20 and one at 40. You're not one at work and one at home and a different one at home. Like. Uh, there are variations, but I think p- people do fall very solidly. And when people say to me, like, no, I'm a total mix, whenever I push them on it, to me, it's very clear that they are describing um, solidly uh, one tendency. Do you feel like an event that can happen in someone's life can shift them? An example might be someone's an obliger for 30, 40 years and then feels this shift over to being an upholder because of maybe a death in the family or a serious injury. Is that possible? Um, I think it's extremely rare. And in the, in the situations where I've been convinced that it's happened, it's been even more transformative of that. It's been something like a, a person actually almost died. Um, and or like a person went through a long period of addiction where at the end of it, they don't seem like they're the same person. It's like, they're not the same person that they were before. I don't know if you, if you know anybody like that, where you're like, wow, it's like, sure. There's a substitution there. Um, but in what, in you, in the form that it seems most typically is, um, like you mentioned an obliger. It's not that an obliger becomes an upholder. It's almost like an obliger's like, you know what? I just can only do what I can do. And if I can't do it, whatever folks like, 
know, <laughs> it's not even like they're not even like one of the one striking pattern among obligers um, is obligers will meet outer expectations. They'll meet, meet, meet expectations. And then suddenly kind of almost arbitrarily they'll snap and they'll be like, well, this I won't do. And they kind of it can be small and symbolic or it can be like a hugely destructive pattern. Like they'll often like you know, be the rock of the office and like picking up every yeah. slack. And, um, and then one day they're like, you know what? I quit. I've got another job. And the boss will be like, wait, 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 like, let's make this right. Like, let me make you an offer. You can't refuse. And they're like, you're dead to me. You know, they just, they're <laughs> just in a, in a rebellion. They refuse. Um, and obviously that can be destructive because what would be better is you're like, Hey boss, I need a raise. Cause I'm doing the work of 10 people or, Hey, you got to get mm. these people off my back cause they're exploiting me or whatever. Um, and so, and so I think it's not even like these obligers are in obliger rebellion, which is like a, which is like a pushback. It's almost like they're just like, I no longer even care really. Like uh, I'm beyond yeah. the concerns of the world. That seems to be the form that I've seen. Um, it isn't like, but I do think with time and experience, people learn to offset it. Like I'm an, I'm a hardcore upholder for sure. But with time and experience, I've learned to stop myself and instead of just knee-jerk meeting an expectation to say, wait, why am I meeting this expectation? Is this, is this work for me? Is this the right choice for me to make? And I'm married to a questioner and it's very helpful. I will often literally ask him, do I have to do this? Or I will think <laughs> to, or like he's a good model for me of like saying, just because somebody says you should do something doesn't mean you have to. I mean, that sounds so obvious, but as an upholder, it's like I really have to discipline myself to hold back. And so I think over time, I've learned to do that much better. I'm still an upholder, but I'm managing it better. And I think that's much more typical is that people sort of figure out how to, um, you know, work with what they have. And so they don't experience the sure. side as much. One of the things that struck me when I was reading your book was how much self-care and how much healthy boundaries in my life is benefiting my healthy living and benefiting my wellness. Without healthy boundaries, I experience burnout. You talk about this for obligers a lot, whether you can get obliger burnout. Yeah. But when we look at someone like yourself, who is a upholder in a marriage where your husband is a questioner for married couples that are listening, what strategy has been successful between you and the questioner on collaborating for family projects? What works between an upholder? and a questioner in a relationship? Well, you know, I think it's a, I think that's a really good pairing. I think that's an easy pairing. Um, a polder questioner is pretty easy um, because they both meet inner expectations. Um, and so you don't have a, the, such a problem with resentment and burnout because they're both just like, hey, you know what? I have to do what I have to do for myself. And to an obliger, that can look, can look selfish um, and, and self-centered and cold. Like, why are you putting your priorities in front of, like in front of the family and to an, to an upholder or a questioner, it's like, it doesn't look that way. Um, and so, um, and so that's not such a challenge. I mean, I think, I think the challenge is the biggest, the biggest challenge or like the place where I feel like the tendencies is the most helpful to the, the people who find it the most helpful are obligers who learn that if there's an outer expectation that they're having an inner expectation that they're having trouble meeting, which by definition they are, because that is the definition of an, of an, of an obliger that you can meet outer expectations, but you can't meet your expectations for yourself. The secret, the answer, the solution is outer accountability. When you plug in outer accountability, you will do it. And it's like my friend on the track team. Like if I had known then what I know now, I would have said to her, here's, if you want to run, you need to, uh, 
train for a train for a run where you're raising money for a charity that you really value. You need to join a running group where people are going to be disappointed if you don't show up. You need to join an accountability group where every week or every month you're going to get together and talk about have you have you stuck to your goals. You need to start a Facebook group where everybody checks in every day with what whether they've done it. You need to make a deal with your husband like, hey, my husband can't have dessert unless I go running that day and I know he loves his mm. dessert so I don't want to be the one who keeps him from it. I want to think about my duty as a role model for my children. I want to show them that I can make a commitment and stick to it. I want to model healthy living. There's a, I'm going to get a puppy because I have to go running with my puppy. There's a million ways to plug in outer accountability once you realize that that is what you need as an obliger. Because a lot of you just got a puppy, didn't you? You just got a, a Barnaby. Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm you know, I go outside a lot more than I did before. And a lot of <laughs> I, I I heard from an obliger who um, made a deal with her neighbor that she would take her, her take her puppy out for two long walks every day. And she's like, I have to do it because if, if the puppy doesn't go out, he tears up my neighbor's house. And so hmm. it's like I'm really held accountable to that. Well, knowing these tendencies can give us the edge in a relationship, but also as trainers, practitioners, or coaches, there's a lot of fitness and wellness professionals that listen to this show. And in my work, I deal with mostly obligers. It's the nature of digital health coaching. So I do, however, run across a number of questioners. And one of the things when I reached out to you about coming on the show that was so exciting is how your work has actually delineated different ways in which I communicate with clients. Like how? Yeah, what's works as an obliger coach working with a questioner client has been front loading the data and the benefits where from the beginning, I, I frame the conversation around the data of a healthy lifestyle and what great things can happen if they follow the program. But I also show examples of what will happen if they don't. I feel like this allows them to kind of choose and be engaged. But I'm curious from your side, what types of questions you feel like a wellness coach or a fitness mm. professional could ask a questioner client to elicit more engagement? No, well, um, absolutely. I think you're, you're exactly right to give lots of data, lots of justification. You also want to spend a lot of time explaining your credentials because the first questioner, a questioner's first question is, why am I listening to you? And even the mm -hmm. fact that they're taught, they, you may find that questioners are more likely to interview you and interview lots and lots of people because they don't just like lot, latch on to one person and be like, this person sounds smart. I'm going to follow their program. They're like, I'm going to interview 10 people and see which one, like, you know, I'm going to do an Excel spreadsheet and rate them all, you know, on a 10 point scale. <laughs> Um, they also love to customize. And so you might tap into that by saying like, this is, this is what I, this is what I generally do, but I really am going to work with you individually to get it just exactly right for you. So we're going to work together so that we really tweak it. So it's exactly right for you. There, the questioners are often enchanted mm. by customization. Um, they also, um, so you, that would be something that you would want to bring out. And then also, um, and this is something that's really helpful for any tendency, um, but particularly questioners because they love data, is um, when have you succeeded in the past? Um, because there's a lot of clues about if, if a person's like, well, I, I really exercised regularly in college or I ate, I ate really healthy when I lived with my first wife. OK, it's like, well, what was different then? Like, what can we replicate? What can we learn? Anything like that is really appealing to a questioner mm. because it, it appeals to this idea of efficiency um, justification, data, um, and, uh, and then customization. 
Well, this is powerful information. And for anyone that works with a client, I think asking the question about customization was an awesome take home. So thank you for that. I want to transition, though, into strategy because we talked mm. a lot about the tendencies. We talked about happiness, but the actual strategy to execute, you know, knowledge is one thing, but execution is another. It's the bridge in between where we really figure out who we are. So breaking a habit, breaking a bad habit versus getting broken down and heading into a shame spiral when we fall off the horse trying to build one. In your research, what have you found about the role of self-love and self-compassion in creating lifelong habits that stick? Is there a strategy to cultivate self-love and compassion? Well, you know, you put your finger on something really important because I think um, what the research shows is that while a lot of people assume that if they really beat themselves up, if they fall off the wagon, that they will somehow energize themselves to do a better job. But what the what the studies show, and I think this is like what you see in real life, is that actually it's the people who show compassion to themselves who do a better job of getting back in the saddle. So the people who say things like, well, that was not my best day, or, you know, well, we've all done that, you know, <laughs> or, well, I learned my lesson that time, you know, I know what I'm going to do. Didn't, the next time I go to the holiday party, I'm going to, you know, do something different. Because what happens often perversely is the person feels so bad about having screwed up that they're driven to the very habit that they're trying to conquer. So they showed that women who are very anxious about their weight tend to overeat as a way to try to self-soothe or gamblers who are really worried about their finances will go gambling in order to feel better. So clearly this is not a good strategy. So you don't want to make yourself feel worse. You want to think about, okay, you know, how do I fail small, not big? Um, I have a whole, um, chapter on the strategy of safeguards, which is how do you do if then planning? If I go to the holiday party, then I will do this. If, uh, if my, my aunt says she baked these cookies specifically for me, then I will say that. Um, and having a whole plan, which helps. But I also think what's really helpful, um, and this is the most fun strategy. There are 21 strategies that you can use to make or break your habits. This is the most fun strategy. It's the strategy of treats. We should all load ourselves with healthy treats because when you give yourself a treat, you feel cared for and energized. And then you don't have that same feeling of like, you know, I want it. I need it. I deserve it. I have to have it. After the day I've had, no one could say I can't do X. Um, but when you give yourself a healthy treat, then, you know, you feel you feel like you've been given something. And when we give more to ourselves, we can ask more from ourselves. And so, but then you have to have like a long laundry list of healthy treats. And for some people, that's a bit of a challenge to think of like, well, what what is your healthy treat? Um, you know, unhealthy treats are often food and drink, shopping and screen time, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, those quickly become unhealthy treats. So you want to sure. think of things that are not in those categories, if those are ones that trip you up, but it's, it's fun to give yourself healthy treats and it really makes, and, and, and research shows that if you get, when people get a, a treat, their self-command rises. So it actually does help you sure. stick to your good habits. Well, we had a ton of Facebook and social media questions. I picked out three or four that were really good, and I have one that fits perfectly with the subject of treats. It's from Lisa. Lisa asks, Gretchen, what do you think about occasionally intentionally letting yourself off the hook for habits you've committed to? I'm asking, as it seems to be an important safety valve for some of my clients to prevent binge cycles. Well, See, I wouldn't connect it to binge cycles because then I think you're getting into this thing like you're getting into the loophole of thinking, I've been so good, I deserve to have X. 
Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's a good way to think about it. Um, but I do think that a way to think about it, that's, that, that gets you to the very same place, but in a, in a different frame of mind, which I think is better for habits in the long term, is to be like, you're a grown up, you make the rules for yourself. And sometimes you want to indulge in something delightful, even though it's not what you usually want to do. So that's fine. But you're going to think about it in advance. You're going to have the pleasure of anticipation. You're going to make mindful choices that you're in control of. And you're going to look back on that choice with pleasure. So, you know, because it's one thing to be like, you know what, my anniversary is coming up. We're going to my favorite restaurant. They make the best dessert in the whole world. We're going next Saturday. And yeah, Basically, I don't eat any sugar, but that night I'm having the tiramisu and it's going to be amazing. And I'm looking forward to it all week. And then when I look back at it in six months, I think, oh my gosh, that was that wonderful weekend where we went away and we went to my favorite restaurant and had an amazing tiramisu. That is not the same thing as being like, I've given up sugar. I don't eat sugar. Oh, but here I'm in in this restaurant and I see the special on the board is tiramisu. I can't say no to that. You only live once. It's my birthday. It's my anniversary. I've been so good. I deserve it. I'm going to be so good tomorrow. I deserve it. Um, You know, it's going to hurt my husband's feelings if I don't have dessert. Therefore, I have dessert in the moment. And then the next day you're like, what was I thinking? I said I wasn't going to have dessert. And then there I was. I ordered it. That's a different feeling. That's feeling like you're out of control. It's feeling like you're not living up to your commitments to yourself. So I think a lot of it is just being very mindful about specifically making an exception, which is completely fine. I mean, what we do most days matters a lot more than what we do, you know, once in a while. It's fine. Do that. But do it. I have a friend who's totally, I'm a low carb fanatic. He's a low carb fanatic. But he was going to Montana. He was staying near this place that had these amazing pies, legendary pies, and he loves pie. So he decided. So he made rules for himself. And he's like, while I'm in Montana, I can have pie at every meal, but I can only have one piece of pie. I can't add anything like ice cream or whipped cream. I can't buy a pie and take it back to my hotel room, and I can only have pie. Um, at this one amazing, super famous place, which was basically where he ate all his meals. And I think over, I think he had like 19 pieces of pie um, <laughs> while I was there. But the thing is, he did it. He That was his plan. He did it. He followed his rules. And when he came back to New York, I was like, oh, you, you know, were you in pie withdrawal? And he's like, well, you know, for a couple of days I was walking around thinking like, man, I'd love a piece of pie right about now. But, you know, and then you get over it because it's just so different. You know, it's like a completely different context. But so it's not like you, it's not like you have to, you know, resign yourself to follow these rules like without a break forever. But I think it's really important how you set it up in your mind. And I just worry when people start saying things like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a cheat day. Well, because then it suggests like you never want to feel like you're being deprived of anything. Um, And so when you set it up like I'm depriving myself so I can earn this thing, well, then pretty soon those periods of deprivation start getting shorter and shorter. And or then you go into like some kind of crisis where you're like, well, I deserve something every single day. It's, It's just like it's not a good way to set it up in your mind. I don't think I think it's better to think like this is what I want. One of the most thing, the a thing I quote all the time because it was this line my sister said to me and it was so profound. Um, my sister was talking about giving up French fries because she loves French fries. But she's one of these people that always wants to say yes to herself. Like mm. I, I'm fine saying no to myself, but she always wants to say yes to herself. And so I said, "But Elizabeth, like, how do you how do you say no to yourself with French fries?" And she said, "Well, now I tell myself that I'm free from French fries." And I was like, "Yes." Sometimes by giving something up, we gain, you know, and so it isn't, you know, and if like, 
she was going to the most amazing French fry place in the whole world and she wanted to have French fries. Okay, fine. But for the most part, that's how she's framed it in her mind. She's free from French fries. And I love the way you said that too, as a framework, because you are an abstainer. There's abstainers and moderators. It's one of your strategies in the book. And myself, I'm also an abstainer. There is no way that I can have chips or anything in my house just because I think it goes with my genetic nature, right? So whether it's eating, exercise, work, or relationships, can you explain a little bit about this abstainer versus the moderator? You already talked about a couple examples. Yeah. Well, and this might be the the person that you said was like, oh, my clients need a cheat day, everyone. So that's a very moderator way of thinking. And by the way, most nutritionists are moderators. I will just throw that out there. Okay. So abstainers, moderators, abstainers are kind of all or nothing people. They find it pretty easy to have none, but once they start, they can't stop. So like I can't have one thin mint cookie. You know, I can't have half a dish of ice cream. It's like once I'm going, I'm going all the way. I find it very, very hard to stop, but I find it pretty easy to have none. Moderators, though, they get kind of, they feel kind of panicky or rebellious if they're told they can never have something. So it's like they would say, you know, I can have one cookie or I'm going to have one square of chocolate or like every other day I have a little bit of ice cream from the freezer. And I just, that little bit is all I need, but I need to know that I can have it. Now, the problem is abstainers and moderators often tell each other that they're doing it wrong. Like as an abstainer, and I don't know if you've had this experience, Josh, a lot of people say things like, it's not healthy to be so rigid with yourself. Oh, they say something like, if you don't have a cheat day every once in a while, you're going to binge and it's not healthy. I'm like, no, that's not, I'm an abstainer. The the longer I go without something, the less I want it. Um, Uh A cheat day is the worst. Like, I don't want to get into that cycle of constantly like on, off, yes, now, today, tomorrow, two, three. Oh my gosh, it's so boring. But, yes. but for a moderator, that's better. It's better that they, they're like, yeah, you can have a little bit when you want. If you want just one piece of chocolate every day, that's, that's fine. But, but to me as an abstainer, I'm like, why do you keep breaking your rules? Why don't you just go cold turkey? Like, the, the, what, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why are you opening the door by having a little bit? But that's what works for moderators. And, and you see this in households all the time. Like, one's an abstainer and one's a moderator. And then um, and, and then they can't agree like what to have in the house or, and it's not just food, it's technology too. Like, um, you know, uh, I can't, uh, you know, I know a guy who said it, it took him an extra year to write his PhD thesis because of world of Warcraft. Cause he just couldn't stop playing. <laughs> um, you know, and if sometimes, sometimes, and the way to try it on yourself is to say, if I'm having trouble having a little bit, would it be easier to have none? Because a lot of people assume that none is harder than a little bit. But if you're an abstainer, none is much easier than a little bit. And I don't know about you, Josh, but sometimes people say to me, like, well, it's easy for you to have none because you have so much self-control. And I'm like, I don't have enough self-control to have a little bit. But you've also built that self-control through the repetition of daily action. And you bring up something for me that's called decision fatigue. It's We've had a couple of people on the show talk about this. We only get a certain number of challenging decisions that can be in our mental bandwidth per day. And so the energy that it takes to choose constantly, I don't miss that. I don't miss, am I going to do it or am I not? These habits that you speak about in your book – the habits that we form actually can give us more energy because it removes the energy of making a decision. 
A hundred percent. I mean, what do you really feel like, what do you really feel like this consistency factor has in place when we look at habits for an abstainer? Yeah, no, I mean, um, it, it, that is why habits are freeing and energizing because they just remove that choice that, and that decision-making. And every choice we make is an opportunity to make the wrong choice. So the less you choose, the more you're like, am I going to go running today? Yes, I am. Cause it's Monday morning and I always go running on Monday morning. It's like, do I have to think about that? No, I don't. Just like, do you think about, mm, I brushed my teeth yesterday. I've been so good about brushing my teeth for the last two weeks. I really think that I should deserve a day off. Or, you know, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be so consistent about brushing my teeth. I think I'd, I, I'm not going to, like, why bother today? Or why, bother, why brush my teeth today? What is one brushing of my teeth going to do for my, my dental health? Nothing. True. Absolutely true. Um, we don't do that. We just brush our teeth and move on. And so the more you can move into that category, um, the better. There's 21 strategies. We're not going to get to all of them today. We're getting towards the end of the show, but I want to talk about a couple more things that are called loopholes. And there's mm. actually 10 of them. Yeah. These loopholes, these are things that for me, it's sudden danger zone if I do a loophole. These are things that we tell ourselves about kind of why it's okay to break our word yes. to ourselves. The loophole spotting, as you call it. Um, examples are when I get back into the swing, when the dust clears, when the holidays are over. What are a few of the most tricky loopholes to spot when it comes to forming habits? Oh, they're all so popular. And they're also, I mean, it's hilarious. That was my favorite chapter was loopholes because, um, because people are so imaginative with their loopholes. Um, some of the, one of the hardest loopholes to spot um, is the fake self-actualization loophole. And because this often comes in the guise of like, self-betterment or, you know, like, or, or, or like, or like, uh, some kind of transcendence. So this is when you're saying, like you walk in and somebody says, Oh, you should have a brownie. And you think, Hey, you only live once or, Oh, life's too short <laughs> not to have the brownie or I've got to act now or miss out forever. You know, this is like, okay, you only live once. That is true. Um, but you know, a good way to think about fake self-actualization is how am I going to feel about this tomorrow? Because if it's really making your life better, Tomorrow, you're going to feel great about it because you're like, I'm so glad I made that decision because it's really made my life better. But a lot of times when we let ourselves off the hook, we don't feel better about it later. We wish we'd done something different. So a good way to test for fake self-actualization versus real self-actualization is how do you feel about it later? Um, another super tricky one, um, because it always works, is the one coin loophole. And this gets its name from like this ancient teaching story called the, um, about the growing heap where someone says like, well, does one coin make a man rich? And you would say, no, one coin does not make a man rich. But what if you give a man another coin? And what if you give him another coin? And what if you give him another coin? At some point, a man is rich because one coin made him so. And this is relevant to habits because any one trip to the gym, any one decision to eat a healthful meal, any one decision, any one afternoon spent in the library working on your PhD thesis, is inconsequential. That's 100% true. This loophole always works. Why should you wear your helmet today? What are the chances you're going to get in a life-threatening accident today? Tiny. Absolutely 100% true. But the only way you have healthy habits is today and today and today. And so instead of looking at the one coin, you have to look at the growing heap. You have to say, like, it's true. One trip to the gym doesn't make a difference. But the only way I have the habit of exercising is by deciding today that I am going to go to the gym. And, um, and so that's a tricky loophole because it's always, it's always totally accurate. 
The one that I deal with a lot is concern for others where I'm working with a client and someone will put their family, their friends, their community, their work, their responsibilities before their healthy habits and executing on those. What do you say to people that put concern for others as a way that they can not execute on their own habits? I mean, this is such a tricky one. Uh, You really put your finger on it. I would love to hear how you handle it. Um, uh, One of the things to say is also... It's true that people often complain when you start a habit. Um, we often fantasize that other people are going to be super supportive, um, and often they are not, because anything that makes life slightly less convenient for them, they're going to protest. But the more, if you do it, they will adjust. But if you just, if you give it up, they will never adjust. So this is very typical, like, well, I wanted to get up and go to a yoga class on Saturday morning, and I really want to go, but my whole family, like, complains if I'm not there to, like, get everybody going. It's like, well, if you do that one time, like, nobody's used to it. But if you go four times, then they'll deal with it. It's like, whatever. I mean, they'll figure it out, you know? And so you have to, you have to help them form the habits that around your habits, because your habits have already affected them. So they've built their life around certain expectations about you. So you have to let those change. Um, another one is to say, is to really challenge the concern for others. Are they like somebody said to me, well, at Thanksgiving dinner, I, I always feel like I have to have two pieces of pumpkin pie because somebody told me that my aunt made pumpkin pie every year because she heard it was my favorite. And I was like, I mean, I didn't say this in my email, but I was like, hey, buddy, do you know that pumpkin pie is the traditional Thanksgiving dessert. <laughs> I, it could be that your aunt makes it because like, that's what everybody makes for Thanksgiving. Yeah. It has nothing to do with you and like what you said when you were 10 years old. You know, to me, that was like a, a in, invoking a concern for others in a place where it was clearly not realistic or warranted. And it's one thing like, if some, you know, if somebody had a great thing about concern for others about portion size. And she, he said, he realized that his grandmother didn't care about what big portions you took, but she really cared about you taking seconds. So he would give himself a really small portion and then like immediately be like, oh, grandma, I'm done already. I need to go get seconds. And she'd be like, oh, that's so wonderful. You love my cooking. And then he would take another small portion. It's like, okay, you can respect the concern for others. <laughs> but it, 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 I have to say, see, I don't feel this. That's my nature. I'm not, I, I'm not very considerate um, in, in, you know, or what do they call it? Concern for others. I score low. And so for me, mm. like if I was at a business dinner and everybody was drinking and I didn't want to drink, that would not bother me almost to a fault. Like, I think sometimes I'm not aware of social cues as much as I should be, or I'm not enough worried about appearing out of step. But I think some people are, they overestimate how much others are paying attention to it. Like somebody said to me, well, here, what do you think about this? Somebody said to me like, well, I can't go to somebody's birthday party and not have a piece of birthday cake. That's just rude. I was like, yes, you can. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, if another adult cares, if you have have a piece of their birthday cake, like, they don't care. Yeah. I mean, the way that I deal with it, when I'm I'm working with someone who is just constantly putting concern for others in front of their goals, I just go back to the question. You're in a position working with me now. You are where you are because of the habits you formed. So in order to be this person you want to be, the stronger, better version of yourself, you have to be able to put yourself further along and first. And that's really what I tell people, because at the end of the day, the energy that we're putting out towards everyone else has to be a balance of what we're giving to ourselves. Otherwise, how are you supposed to show up as a powerful mom or a strong father if you're exhausted, if you're maybe you're a obliger and you're just in total and complete meltdown? I mean, I, I can say that I'll raise my hand and say I had to learn over the course of seven to 10 years 
how to establish these healthy habits. So that's what I'm sharing with people. That's what I try to harp on is, hey, when you put yourself first, you actually get to show up more powerfully and serve the people that you're concerned about. So it's a catch 22, but it's an interesting, and I don't think it'll ever be an easy conversation to have, Gretchen. Um, How does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, and I would really like underscore, because you have two things kind of going on. One is like, putting yourself first. And the other is the accountability to others. And I would say, I would really, I would really double down on the idea of being accountable to others. Cause I feel like that is what actually makes obligers act more directly than them trying to learn to put themselves first, which I think is very hard. Mm. Like, is just not something that resonates particularly well, but something like you need to be a role model of healthy behavior, or you need to husband your strength because, like, I know an obliger who was having a lot of neck pain and I had been trying to get um, him to go to this strength training thing that I do all the time. And he refused to go. But then finally he did. And I said, why did you go? And he said, well, I just realized like, I, I, I have to, you know, I've got three little kids. Like I can't be in pain all the time. Like I have to be yeah. on my game. So it was, it was about accountability in terms of like his duty as a parent, but also things like, okay, I'm looking over your shoulder as a coach. I'm in your accountability group. And if you don't participate and hold me accountable, and hold yourself accountable, then I'm going to feel like I don't have to hold myself accountable. And then we're all, then none of us are going to get anything done. So we all have to be accountable to the group in in terms of our commitment to each other. Or, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to join an app where everybody like sees what I'm doing. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I think that it's that accountability that is really the crucial factor that actually makes obligers change their behavior. I, I myself do not think that saying things like, I'm going to put myself first, that doesn't seem to work with obligers. It seems to make them feel worse about themselves because then they're like, what's wrong with me? I have no self-esteem. Um, and I'm like, it's not that you don't have self-esteem. It's just that you don't have outer accountability. So you're not doing something. Give yourself outer accountability and watch. And, you, and then your self-esteem will rise because you'll be doing everything. Now, obligers oh. sometimes don't want to get outer accountability because then they know that they're going to be stuck and they're going to have to do it. Well, that's just the nature of the beast. Absolutely. Last piece here as we wrap up the strategy section is monitoring. I love how you talked about your jawbone. You know, one of the things I use in my groups are Fitbits. We use all kinds of different tracking and we have it on a dashboard for me to see all the numbers. Ah, a data person might love that. So yes. I actually work with people as a virtual coach. That's that's what Wellness Force does. But these obligers, they thrive off external accountability. Fitness trackers and wellness apps, there's a movement, it's quantified self and it's self-knowledge through numbers. You talked about this jawbone. Do you still use the jawbone or any wellness apps for yourself as an upholder? You know, I, I, I have, um, my jawbone was giving me technical problems. And so I sort of drifted away from it because I just, it was like, was becoming cumbersome. And as an upholder, I didn't really need it. Um, I do keep feeling like I want to go back to it because now that I have a dog, I'm wondering like how much more, like, am I getting more exercise? If I am, I'd be sort of curious. Um, but for me, it wasn't so important. Um, but I think for some people it's crucial. Um, and, but it, because partly because of the monitoring, cause we always do a better job with the monitoring. And also if you're also plugging in the accountability, then that is, that is super powerful. Cause that's two extremely powerful habit strategies combined. Yeah, it's definitely not for everyone. It's for the people that want the extreme version of accountability, but the results have been great. I want to transition into the last part of our show. This is seven for seven. It's seven really fast questions for seven top of mind answers. Mm. Question one is if you could tell your 21-year-old self something, drop a quick note in their pocket, what would the note say? Be Gretchen. That's like, yeah. 
Number two, what is the biggest difference between the habits people have on the East Coast versus the habits people have on the West? Ooh, interesting. Um, hmm, I have such a skewed view of it. Um, I think people on the West Coast eat, eat more food at, during work. Mm, like a stress response? No, because a lot of the big companies on the West Coast, like at least see this, I'm just making observations from what I see. Like I go to these giant tech companies and they just have free food everywhere and people just eat tons and tons of food. <laughs> uh, but those companies are the same on the East Coast, but it just, there are more of them on the West Coast. And now the East Coast Got firms it. are becoming more like that. But anyway, of what I've seen, um, that's, it's, it's just availability. It's a simple matter of availability. Free availability. What is one of the biggest fears you've had to overcome in life? I hate to drive, and I do force myself to drive, but I hate to drive. Well, in New York, that's not exactly easy. No, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's, and I don't drive very often. I think I would I'd do better if I had to drive more, um, but I don't drive very often, and when I do, I hate to drive. What is the most exciting thing you're looking forward to this year? Well, I have a new pod. I have a podcast myself, um, which I'm so excited about. It still feels brand new. We've actually just had our first anniversary. Um, it's called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. I do it with my sister, um, the one who's free from French fries. Um, and um, it, I, you know, I feel like the first year we were sort of like figuring it all out, and this year, like, we're just really excited. Um, I'm really excited to figure out like how to make it better. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and really like take advantage of everything that you can do with a podcast as, as you know, well, it's a super, super compelling, exciting forum to be engaging with people. Absolutely. And it's so valuable because right now there's thousands of people listening and they're connecting with what you're saying in a way that really isn't always possible by reading. So I will absolutely link your show with your sister. By the way, I love your guys' banter. She's so oh, different, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you. you. Oh, yes. If you could change one thing about the health and wellness industry, what would it be and why? Uh, can I say two things? Sure. Um, one is I would have I would have people like really not have these one size fits all solutions, which I think everybody wants to say, do it first thing in the morning or give yourself a cheat day or, you know, whatever these are to really say, we have to think about what works for you. What kind of person are you? But then also kind of that's like a more general abstract thing. And then I also have to say that the fact of the matter is I'm just like this crazy low carb fanatic. It's been the greatest thing for me. I, you know, I've converted people close to me. It's been an amazing thing for them. I wish there was just more awareness of, um, of kind of like the, the, the research on the science behind it. I think a lot of people could benefit from understanding it, especially people who, um, really have a sweet tooth. Um, like I do have tremendous sweet tooth. And when you stop eating sugar, like you stop wanting it and it's fantastic. You read Gary Tom's book. That was what really catalyzed you to change your eating habits. Your dad followed suit. He lost a bunch of weight. You've had Melissa Hartwig on your show. She talked about removing the triggering foods. I mean, how powerful has this been for you to shift the nutrition? It's been amazing. Yeah. It, Why We Get Fat by Gary Tobbs. Just like I, overnight, I changed everything about the way that I eat. Um, and I'm again, it's not for everyone, but I just I feel like a lot of people don't really know. You know, it's really all about insulin response. And I was very interested in that because Elizabeth, my sister that we were just talking about, is a type one diabetic. And so I became really interested in insulin because obviously her life depends on it. Um, and uh, but any and anyway, I just I felt like so many questions that I'd had my whole life were answered and explained. 
And, 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 you know, and the, th the great thing about something like this is like, it's not like you need to buy the Hubble telescope to do your research. It's just like, just try it for a month. That's what Melissa says about Whole30. Mm -hmm. She's like, just try it for a month and, and see, like, it's just, it, it, and this is good for questioners who like to experiment on themselves too. It's like, just see, just see how you feel, see how you respond. You'll know more about yourself one way or another. And, um, I think a lot of people say things like, well, I can't live without bagels. It's like, you know what? You can live without bagels and you might, and you might, and you might feel like you're better off without bagels. And so just try it. It's just something to think about. You know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of things to think about and to try. And this is one of them. And, you know, I've just had such great success with it myself. Um, and I just believe so much in the research that I, that I see all the time. Um, that I, 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 I wish more people knew about it. Cause I think that there, there's, it, it can be a really powerful strategy and people don't know enough to use it. Last uh, Facebook question from Kristen asked Gretchen, what is a mantra or a phrase that calms you down in time of stress? Mm, the days are long, but the years are short. I often think about that because, uh, you know, any one day can feel interminable and like, I just can't possibly get through everything on my to-do list. But then, you know, we're, what happened to 2014? I don't remember anything from 2014. Seriously. I dimly, I dimly remember 2015. It's already yeah. fading in the rearview mirror. But 2014, no recollection. Yeah, we're in um, April of 2016 now. Yeah, <laughs> what? I feel like that just oh, happened man. yesterday. Um, so I, it just that that phrase helps me keep it in perspective, especially with things to do with my children, where I'm like, you know, don't rush through things. Enjoy this time of life. Um, really revel in this season um, of their childhood, and you know it's all it's all passing so quickly. So um, try to let go of petty grudges and minor irritations, and uh, and and focus on the big picture, and really try to you know make the most of of this time. Last question, Gretchen: What is wellness to you? What is your personal definition of wellness? You know. It's having the life that you want for yourself, you know, and I think for people that can be very different. Um, but I think we all have kind of that, we all have had the experience where we get in bed and we're pleasantly tired and we think, you know, I had a good day. Like I lived up to my ideals for myself. I lived up to my expectations for myself. I got things done and I, my life reflected my values and that is a great feeling. And I think wellness is when you really feel that more often than not, when you feel like I've had a good day, I'm better than before. You know, this is the title of my, my book about habits is better than before because it's, it's not about achieving perfection. It's just like, can you be better than before? So you're currently working on a book that really dives deep into the four tendencies. When is this book coming out so I can pre-order the copy and get it helicopter delivered to where I am? Oh, you're so nice. You're so nice to say so. I know I want to hear more about how you're applying it because I'm fascinated by people who are actually working with real people and clients and how it can change the way they discuss and the way they communicate and how they set up systems and like what works. That, that to me is endlessly fascinating. I'm still working on it. I don't know when it's going to hit the streets. Um, it's, uh, it's like every book that I write, I think, you know what, Gretchen, you know, just deal with it. It's never going to be this good again. You'll never have a book that you like as much as this book. It will never be as fascinating as this book. And then every time I'm like, no, this is the one that's the most fascinating. <laughs> and that's how I feel about the four tenets. I'm like, this is so crazy fascinating. Um, so, and I've taken notes as we've been talking about things, observations that you made, because I feel like you get it so much exactly what I'm talking about. And you had such great examples. So 
um, I'm not sure when it's going to um, be published, but I'm I'm fast and furious working on it. Well, thank you for your words. And I just want to take a second here to honor the absolutely powerful contribution that you're making to wellness. I will do my part from this day up until as long as it takes to infect as many people as I can (laughs) with this knowledge about understanding your tendency. So thank you so much for the work you do. Oh, thank you. It was so fun to talk to you. Talk about power in action. You guys, what an amazing episode. Write to me. Let me know what came up for you when you were listening. Josh at wellnessforce.com. If you want your voice to be heard even louder, leave a 90-second voicemail for me on the Wellness Force app. Download the app right to your iPhone. Go to wellnessforce.com slash podcast app, and you can get all the episodes before anyone else does. And right from the application, you can leave me a live voicemail. Maybe even talk to the guest that was on the show. Let them know what moved in you and what you're prepared to do for your wellness force. Show notes from today can be found at wellnessforce.com slash better. Download all the free resources about habit loopholes, strategies to break your habits. Also, take that test. Let me know what your tendency type is. I'm curious. Are you an obliger like me? Are you questioning? What do you do? Who are you? Why do you do it? Find out at wellnessforce.com slash better. Next Tuesday, do not miss the episode with Jeff Sanders. He's interviewed Deepak Chopra and world-class leaders on how to integrate mindfulness into our busy lives and integrate some of these habits that Gretchen so profoundly described. Now you get to go and have an amazing day with all the tools and inspiration from Gretchen and every other guest that's been on the show. And until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.